Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of this time together. We thank you for this book. We pray that you would help us to put aside all of the other things that we've been preoccupied with during the day and that you would open our hearts to hear whatever message you desire to send us through your Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray that you would guide us in this time, that you would help use the scripture that we study and Lewis's words to help us be more like Jesus. For we pray all this in his name. Amen. So, uh, we are moving into the last part of the last battle. And uh, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, when we finish the last battle, we are not done for the semester because we're going to move into the weight of glory after that, which is a really wonderful uh, sermon that Lewis preached during World War II. So uh, for the music tonight, we have something that's very appropriate for what we are studying, and we'll see whether anyone knows what this is. So this is the In Paradisum section from Gabrielle Foray's Requiem. And it is um, not easy to sing. This is one of those things that if uh, you're an English boy choir, that this is something that you aspire to because being able to sing it the right way, which these people are doing, uh, is very difficult. But it is beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. So uh, that's something for you to forward to when the email comes out. So um, let's say together our verse. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So just a couple of words for anyone who is new, whether in person or on the podcast. Uh, there are a couple of ways to approach this class. You can be on the beach, which means you don't do anything that you don't want to do. You might not read the book. You might not come to class. You might not do anything at all. Um, that is all fine. If you want to just be loosely associated, that's great. Or you can snorkel, go deep on the parts that you like. So for example, tonight there are not one, not two, not three, but four handouts. Two of them are on the theme of the quotation in the chapter tonight about the stable and something inside the stable being bigger. And if you like that theme, you can snorkel and read those and ignore the other two handouts. Or you can be a scuba diver and you can just go for all of it. So, as we've talked about with this book, part of what makes this so interesting is it's working on three different levels. And in some ways, there's even a fourth level 
that this last part is adding because these last couple of chapters are really a masterful description of what the scriptures teach us about what heaven is like. So we're going to have a lot of fun exploring these. So last week, uh, we talked about chapter 12, Through the Stable Door, and we saw one by one the characters who we've been following through this story um, being dragged into the door of this frightening stable. But once they got inside, it was not quite as we might have expected. And we saw that Tyrion and the others confront Tash, but Tash is told to be banished by this voice that is beautiful, and then he disappears, and Tyrion then goes and meets the ancient kings and queens of Narnia. Um, there were a lot of wonderful themes uh, last week, uh, and we began to get a sense about Aslan's imminent presence, which we're going to get more of tonight. Oh, yes, he plucks up Rishta. Yes, I will fix that. So, uh, let's get back there. Yes, so tonight's chapter, How the Dwarfs Refuse to be Taken In. And I got a really funny comment from one of our listeners who is out in Texas, who's been reading The Last Battle to his daughter. And, uh, you might have noticed that the dwarfs tend to say the same thing over and over again. The dwarfs are for the dwarfs. The dwarfs are for the dwarfs. And apparently this little girl asked her dad, if C.S. Lewis was still alive, I would write him a letter and tell him we got it. And they don't need to say that all the time. <laughs> but there, there is a, a reason that they are saying that all the time, that Lewis is trying to make a point there that we're going to talk about. So the dwarfs refuse to be taken in. Uh, so Tyrion, at the beginning of this chapter, finds himself outside in this beautiful grassy field under this deep blue sky, close to a grove of wondrous fruit trees. And Lewis tells us a lot about the way the air feels and that it feels like early summer and just how absolutely beautiful it is. And Peter and Edmund and Lucy and Diggory and Polly all recount how they were in a train station and then suddenly taken into Narnia and they saw Tyrion and the others coming in through a door. And Tyrion is very confused about this because he knew he went into the stable, but that was kind of all he had figured out. And then he turns around and there is this miraculous door that's just there. In the middle of this field, a door frame and a door right in the middle of a field, not connected to any building and standing up on its own, which is very peculiar. But what's even more peculiar is that when you walk up to the door and you peer through the cracks between the boards, you can see as if you were looking out of the stable door and you can see the campfire and you can see the calamines and all of that. So clearly it is a miraculous door. It is not an ordinary door. And 
This goes right along with what we're talking about, this door imagery that we're going to come back to that's all through the gospel. And then we see Lucy's joy at being in Narnia. Lucy and all of the other stories, if you haven't read them, is always the one who is closest and most sensitive to Aslan. One of the things that is interesting in these stories that is very kind of countercultural for their time is that Lewis constructed all of these so that the hero of the stories is the youngest character and a girl. So for a bachelor writing in the 1940s and 50s in England, that is fairly extraordinary. So Lucy is rejoicing to be back in Narnia. And Tyrion says he can just tell that the joy is just welling up in her. But the one thing that she's sad about, Lucy is very compassionate, and she sees these dwarfs that are in this beautiful grassy country, but they are miserable, and they're acting very, very odd. And they are complaining that they're still in a stable. And Lucy keeps trying to explain to them, open your eyes, you're not in a stable, look at the sky, feel the grass, and finally in desperation she thinks, well maybe they could smell violets. So she plucks some beautiful fresh violets that are growing and holds them up to the nose of one of the dwarfs who immediately gets furious and accuses her of putting uh, something nasty from the stable in front of his nose instead. And so they can't perceive where they are in the same way as the others. And we're gonna come back to that theme, but Lewis is playing with some theology here. And then at the end of the chapter, Aslan himself appears. And always when Aslan appears, there's this beautiful fragrance, and then there is great joy. And all of the characters that we've been following bow down and nuzzle in his mane and just experience the love and joy of his presence. And then Lucy begs him to try to help the dwarfs and he says, well, I will do what I can. And so he sets a great feast for these dwarfs. Everything that you could imagine, every exotic and delicious food, wine, beautiful goblets, plates, all of that. And they can't understand what it is. They think that it is nasty stuff from the stable floor and they end up turning it into a food fight. Now there's a whole sermon in there, but I'm gonna restrain myself. Uh, there's so many themes in this chapter, but the ones we're gonna focus on tonight, the first one is the sensate beauty of the heavenly country. The second one, the healing of every infirmity including age in heaven, the joy of fellowship in heaven, the image of the door and ways of seeing, looking at and looking through, and we're gonna do a little deep dive into that, the nature of the stable and the spiritual blindness of the dwarfs and the danger of cynicism. So, the sensate beauty of the heavenly country. Sensate just means that it appeals to all of your senses uh, in a way that is glorious. They stood on grass. The deep blue sky was overhead and the air which blew gently on their faces 
was that of a day in early summer. Not far away from them rose a grove of trees, thickly leaved, but under every leaf there peeped out the gold or faint yellow or purple or glowing red of fruits such as no one has seen in our world. The fruit made Tyrion feel that it must be autumn, but there was something in the feel of the air that told him it could not be later than June. They all moved toward the trees. Everyone raised his hand to pick the fruit he best liked the look of, and then everyone paused for a second. This fruit was so beautiful that each felt it can't be meant for me. Surely we're not allowed to pluck it. What was the fruit like? Unfortunately, no one can describe a taste. All I can say is that compared with those fruits, the freshest grapefruit you've ever eaten was dull and the juiciest orange was dry, and the most melting pear was hard and woody, and the sweetest wild strawberry was sour. And there were no need, no seeds or stones and no wasps. If you had once eaten that fruit, all the nicest things in this world would taste like medicines after it. But I can't describe it. You can't find out what it is like unless you can get to that country and taste for yourself. And part of what Lewis is trying to do is to paint a picture that helps us to understand the wondrous and deep beauty of heaven. And we talked about this some in The Great Divorce when we were studying that, but one of the big theological problems in our current age is we have a very anemic view of heaven. As I am fond of saying, we have the Hallmark card view of heaven where we think, there's a little pink cloud with a little fat baby angel playing a little gold harp. And I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound very appealing to me. And eternity of that doesn't sound very appealing. But what Lewis is painting is this picture of this deep country. And we're going to see that there's this refrain that's going to come further up and further in because there is an inexhaustible depth to this country. So some scripture. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And as I mentioned last week, next time you go in the church, look at the top in the arch of the stained glass window because that is exactly the scene that is depicted there. The water, the river of life, um, deep blue, and then these trees with the fruit for the healing and the leaves for the healing of the nations. And then that beautiful passage from Psalm 84 that we've heard some choirs singing an anthem based on this. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. And part, of course, what is lovely about the courts of the Lord is that the Lord himself is the very definition of beauty. 
and he dwells in this place. And because it is his dwelling place, his beauty spreads to all of it. Then this wonderful passage also from Isaiah. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. And then from Psalm 87, on the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. And of course, that's where that great hymn, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken, Zion, City of Our God, comes right out of that psalm. And you will remember in Revelation 21 that we see the new heaven and the new earth, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, adorned like a bride for her husband. And Lewis is going to be painting this beautiful picture of what heaven is like for the next couple of chapters. So one of the other things that is uh, very clear, but you have to be on the lookout for it because you might miss it, is Lewis is already telling us early on here that in heaven, uh, the healing of every infirmity, including age, is going to happen. And if you are older like I am, the idea that every infirmity and everything that doesn't work the way it used to that all of that is going to be brought into a beautiful resurrection body where there is no more pain or weariness or any of that or disease is just a beautiful, beautiful thing. So in the chapter it says, it wasn't at all like the other time we were pulled into Narnia out of our own world by magic. There was a frightful roar and something hit me with a bang, but it didn't hurt. And I felt not so much scared as well excited Oh, and this is one queer thing. I'd had a rather sore knee from a hack at Rugger. I noticed it had suddenly gone, and I felt very light. And then, here we were. It was much the same for us in the railway carriage, said the Lord Diggory, wiping the last traces of the fruit from his golden beard. Only I think you and I, Polly, chiefly felt that we'd been unstiffened. You youngsters won't understand, but we stopped feeling old. And part of what's extraordinary about this passage is we have Eustace and Edmund and Lucy and Peter in this passage, but we also have Diggory and Polly. Diggory and Polly were the very first people to go into Narnia, and they were there when Aslan sang Narnia into creation. And in Narnian time, they are thousands of years older than these other children. And yet they are all together. And Lewis makes a point of talking about Diggory's golden beard, that he is youthful again and he has been unstiffened. And I'm sorry to say I am at an age where I understand that. <laughs> and it is a beautiful idea. So some scripture. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. 
What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Now, I don't know if y'all did your homework and listened to that music link that I sent out. If you didn't do it, you've still got time. You can go back and listen to that link because it takes that verse I just read and puts it to the most glorious music. So I would commend that to you. The joy of fellowship in heaven. The earth trembled. The sweet air grew suddenly sweeter. A brightness flashed behind them. All turned. Tyrion turned last because he was afraid. There stood his heart's desire, huge and real. The golden lion, Aslan himself, and already the others were kneeling in a circle round his forepaws and burying their hands and faces in his mane as he stooped his great head to touch them with his tongue. Then he fixed his eyes upon Tyrion, and Tyrion came near, trembling, and flung himself at the lion's feet. And the lion kissed him and said, Well done, last of the kings of Narnia, who stood firm at the darkest hour. And I would commend to you to just find that passage in the book and just read it out loud and think about that for a little bit because, of course, Aslan is Jesus in this story and to just think about what that meeting would be like. So some scripture. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, that is Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, Jesus. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And then I love this. It's so easy to skip this when we read this passage. Jesus speaking at the Last Supper. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And then Jesus speaking to his disciples, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And then from 1 John, what we shall later be has not yet been revealed. We do know that when it is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So there are all of these promises that not only will we have fellowship with other believers, 
but that we will be at table with Jesus. There's an old song that was really popular in the 70s before some of y'all were born um, that is called God and Man at Table Are Sat Down. And that is very much what is going on here. It's just an amazing, amazing thing to comp- contemplate. And this whole idea of these banquets and these feasts and that all of the believers are together, that everyone there is seeking to follow Jesus and is in a relationship with him and praising him. And there's much joy. Then we get to this image of the door. And we're going we're gonna to pause a little while on this. So part of what Lewis is getting at with this door is different ways of seeing and different understandings of reality. So Tyrion, but did I not come in out of the wood into the stable? Whereas this seems to be a door leading from nowhere to nowhere. It looks like that if you walk around it, said Peter, but put your eye to that place where there's a crack between two of the planks and look through. Tyrion put his eye to the hole. At first he could see nothing but blackness. Then as his eyes grew used to it, he saw the dull red glow of a bonfire that was nearly going out. And above that, in a black sky, stars. Then he could see dark figures moving about or standing between him and the fire. He could hear them talking and their voices were like those of Calermines. So he knew that he was looking out through the stable door into the darkness of lantern waste where he had fought his last battle. He looked round again and could hardly believe his eyes. There was the blue sky overhead and grassy country spreading as far as he could see in every direction and his new friends all round him laughing. It is a very puzzling state of affairs. So some scripture about this image of the door. Jesus in John 10. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. And then this beautiful prayer from Paul in Ephesians. I pray that the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. And this whole idea that there's a way of seeing where our hearts need to be enlightened by the Holy Spirit in order to see and understand. And then St. Paul in the end of 1 Corinthians 13, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And what this passage is talking about is that we will see Jesus face to face, and we will know him fully, and we will be fully known, and that there will be glory in that. So we're going to do a little excursion into an essay called Meditation in a Tool Shed, 
which might not be the first thing you would pick up off of a bookshelf, uh, but it is a wonderful and really important essay that if you ever get a hold of the central idea of this essay, it will change your life. Lewis wrote this in 1945, and then it was published in an essay collection called God in the Dock. So I want to read the most important part of it. And you can just imagine yourself into this scene. I was standing today in the dark tool shed. The sun was shining outside, and through the crack at the top of the door, there came a sunbeam. From where I stood, that beam of light with the specks of dust floating in it was the most striking thing in the place. Everything else was almost pitch black. I was seeing the beam, not seeing things by it. And I think all of us have had that experience of being somewhere dark and you see this beam of light coming in and you can see the dust motes in there and it's almost like this golden yellow quality to the light beam. But Lewis goes on. Then I moved so that the beam fell on my eyes. Instantly, the whole previous picture vanished. I saw no, no tool shed and above all, no beam. Instead, I saw framed in the irregular cranny at the top of the door, green leaves moving on the branches of a tree outside and beyond that 90 odd million miles away, the sun. Looking along the beam, and looking at the beam are very different experiences. We must, on pain of idiocy, deny from the very outset the idea that looking at is, by its own nature, intrinsically truer or better than looking along. One must look both along and at everything. In particular cases, we shall find reason for regarding the one or the other vision as inferior. Thus, the inside vision of rational thinking must be truer than the outside vision, which sees only movements of the gray matter. For if the outside vision were the correct one, all thought, including this thought itself, would be valueless, and this is self-contradictory. If that last part didn't make sense to you, don't worry. Um, you can spend some time poring over it. But the basic idea that he's getting at is that when you're standing in the tool shed, and you can see that beam of light, you can look at that beam of light and you can appreciate it from the outside and you can describe things about it and some of its characteristics and qualities. But it is an altogether different thing to get into the beam of light and then look around and see what that beam of light is actually illuminating. So what you could see on the floor of the tool shed, for example, in the areas that are not dark because the light is falling on it. And he says, these are two very different kinds of seeing. So uh, one of the Lewis scholars says this, Lewis uses this metaphor, looking at versus looking along, to distinguish between two different modes or postures of knowing. Looking at versus looking along. To look at something is to try and grasp it intellectually using reason to view it analytically from an objective, detached perspective. To look along something, on the other hand, is to engage with it experientially using one's physical senses or imagination, to view it from a deeper, more personal perspective. 
In other words, to look at is to inspect. To look along is to immerse. So looking at is like putting on goggles and looking for something. Looking along is to put yourself into whatever environment it is and become part of what you can learn and sense from it. And there's a wonderful application of this in Lewis's book, Letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer. And that is a book that a lot of people have not read, even Lewis fans. I would commend that book to you. There is a lot of really rich insight and imagery. And part of what Lewis um, does with this idea of looking at versus looking along is to talk about how there's a connection between the blessings, the pleasure, the joy that God sends us and how we respond with gratitude to that and how to move from just simple, well, that's nice, um, to move into a deep adoration because of what God has done. So this is what he says. I was learning the far more secret doctrine that pleasures are shafts of the glory as it strikes our sensibility. As it impinges on our will or our understanding, we give it different names, goodness or truth or the like. But its flash upon our senses and mood is pleasure. But aren't there bad, unlawful pleasures? Certainly there are. But in calling them bad pleasures, I take it we are using a kind of shorthand. We mean pleasures snatched by unlawful acts. It is the stealing of the apple that is bad, not the sweetness. The sweetness is still a beam from the glory. That does not palliate the stealing, it makes it worse. There is sacrilege in the theft. We have abused a holy thing. I have tried since that moment to make every pleasure into a channel of adoration. I don't mean simply by giving thanks for it. One must, of course, give thanks, but I mean something different. How shall I put it? And I want to just pause here to say that part of what Lewis is talking about is something that you hear a lot in our culture. People talk about this, but very few people actually practice it. And it's the idea of being present. It's the idea of being present in each moment as you live through your day, rather than being so focused on the future that you just get through the day so you can move on to the next thing. And scripture is so clear. Jesus says right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount that we need to live one day at a time. And that there is this beauty that God sends us through all of our senses all day long and we are literally blinded to it because we don't know how to look along. We only know how to look at. And so what Lewis is saying here is that every time we experience a pleasure, we need to stop, we need to be thankful, and then we need to try to turn that into adoration. He says, we can't, or I can't, hear the song of a bird simply as a sound. Its meaning or message, that's a bird, comes with it inevitably. Just as one can't see a familiar word in print, as a merely visual pattern. The reading is as involuntary as the seeing. When the wind roars, I don't just hear the roar, I hear the wind. In the same way, it is possible to read as well as to have a pleasure, or not even as well as. So the distinction ought to become, and sometimes is impossible, 
to receive it and to recognize its divine source are a single experience. This heavenly fruit is instantly redolent of the orchard where it grew. This sweet air whispers of the country from whence it blows. It is a message. We know we are being touched by a finger of that right hand at which there are pleasures forevermore. There need be no question of thanks or praise as a separate event, something done afterwards. To experience the tiny theophany is itself to adore. And the theophany just means the presence of God. And so what this is saying, for example, if you were outside today, which was a beautiful day, if you were outside and you happened to walk as I did past one of these trees that three weeks ago was just a bunch of sticks up in the sky and you walked by today and it was absolutely covered with pink flowers and then all around the base of the tree were petals of these pink flowers instead of just walking by and saying, you might actually stop, look at it, think of the fact that that tree is a living thing with roots that go down into the deep earth that has been watered by the rain and that God has made in such a way that it miraculously takes this dead looking stick of branch and causes these beautiful pink blossoms that are so delicate and perfect to just burst forth into profusion and then to spend some time thinking about that is amazing and to thank God for it. Now, the problem is most of us just go right by. But if we can learn to be more present and to look at the beauty that God has scattered in this profligate way all around, it will really change the way we see things. And then Lewis says this, gratitude exclaims very properly, how good of God to give me this. Adoration says, what must be the quality of that being whose far off and momentary coruscations are like this. One's mind runs back up the sunbeam to the sun. And what Lewis means here, coruscation is a word we don't use very much, but if you were to go to Krogan's and say, I would like to see a four carat diamond ring, and they brought it out and they held it under that jeweler's light, you would look at that diamond and you see these flashes everywhere. In the diamond, outside of the diamond, you would see those flashes. Those are coruscations. And so what Lewis is saying here is that the beauty that we see is like those coruscations off that diamond, that it's just a little tiny bit of the glory and beauty that are found in God. And that when we begin to see that those beautiful things are just this little shadow and hint of how glorious God is, then it should take our hearts and channel them toward adoration in the same way that when you look at that sunbeam coming down, you think about how beautiful that sunbeam is, but think about the source of that sunbeam being the sun, which is millions and millions and millions of miles away, but is so full of energy and heat and light that it comes right through all of space to where we can feel it on our cheek. It is truly extraordinary. 
So Lewis says this, if I could always be what I aim at being, no pleasure would be too ordinary or too usual for such reception. From the first taste of the air, when I look out of the window, one's whole cheek becomes a sort of palate down to one's soft slippers at bedtime. And I think what he's trying to get at here is that we have become immune. We have become immune to the glory of God. We've become immune to the beauty that God has put all through creation to point us to him. We've become immune to it. And what Lewis is saying is we need desperately to recover that. We need to recover that sensibility because when we do that, there is joy there. There's joy in stopping to take account of that beautiful flower or that tree or the breeze on your cheek or whatever it might be. Um, we are so prone, well, I shouldn't say that. Maybe y'all aren't like this. I am prone sometimes to complain. I'm sure none of y'all ever complain about anything. But it is impossible to be grateful and to be complaining at the same time. And all of us are characterized one way or the other. We either complain more than we're grateful or we're grateful more than we complain. And one of those is better than the other. So I would encourage you to do a little gratitude audit for yourself since it's Lent. All right, so the next part, the nature of the stable. It seems then, said Tyrion, smiling himself, that the stable seen from within and the stable seen from without are two different places. Because remember when they were back in Narnia and they looked at the outside of the stable, it wasn't very big. It was a small building with this door on the front and a steeply pitched roof um, that looked big enough to hold a couple of animals, but it wasn't like a huge barn. It was just a small stable. So that's the way it looks on the outside. But now that Tyrion has gone into it, now he's in this vast land. So he says, these are two very different places. Yes, said the Lord Diggory, its inside is bigger than its outside. Yes, said Queen Lucy, and our world too, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. Now, what do you think she's talking about? <laughs> so she's talking about the nativity. She's talking about Jesus being born in a stable. And one of the things that is so amazing about that is that you think about the creator of the universe lying there. And there, there's a wonderful poem by William Butler Yeats um, where he talks about um, how crazy this idea of the stable is. And he says, one of the last lines is, the uncontrollable mystery on the bestial floor. And there is a deep truth in that, the, whole, the God of the universe on the floor of this place for animals. So Luke 2, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And we're so used to this story that we're like, well, of course that's what happened. But 
One of the things that is really good to do is to pray for fresh eyes of wonder because this is not what you would expect the all-powerful God of the universe to do in entering into his own creation. It is a remarkable thing. The other thing that's very interesting about this little passage is that what Lucy says is very clearly a reference to Jesus. And it is the only really clear reference to Jesus in all of the Chronicles of Narnia. There are lots of things about Aslan where you have to be kind of thick to not figure out that Aslan is like Jesus. But this is the only place where Christianity enters in to the story. And I would commend to you, there are two handouts about this idea of the stable um, that really develop some of these ideas more than we have time to tonight that I would commend to you. So, the spiritual blindness of the dwarfs and the danger of cynicism. And one of the things I want to point out is you might have noticed there's some glorious things in this chapter tonight, but look at what Lewis chose to title this chapter. He chose to title it, How the Dwarfs Refuse to Be Taken In. And so part of what he's saying is we need to pay attention to what's going on with these dwarfs because this is important. And one of the things that Lewis rails against is the whole idea of cynicism. And he talks about this in Screwtape Letters, um, using the word flippancy, um, but this whole idea of cynicism, I've seen it all, I'm smarter than anyone else is, I just look down on everything and everyone and criticize all of it, uh, which is pretty much what our culture is today. And what Lewis keeps trying to tell us is that that path chosen over and over and over again will harden your heart and blind your eyes to the point that eventually you will become unable to see. So this passage starts right after Lucy has pleaded with Aslan to please do something for these poor dwarfs. Dearest, said Aslan, I will show you both what I can and what I cannot do. He came close to the dwarfs and gave a low growl, low, but it set all the air shaking. But the dwarfs said to one another, hear that? That's that gang at the other end of the stable trying to frighten us. They do it with a machine of some kind. Don't take any notice. They won't take us in again. Aslan raised his head and shook his mane. Instantly a glorious feast appeared on the dwarf's knees, pies and tongues and pigeons and trifles and ices. Now that might not sound good to you, um, but for an English feast of this period, that was very good stuff. And each dwarf had a goblet of good wine in his right hand, but it wasn't much use. They began eating and drinking greedily enough, but it was clear that they couldn't taste it properly. They thought they were eating and drinking only the sort of things you might find in a stable. One said he was trying to eat hay, and another said he had got a bit of an old turnip, and a third said he'd found a raw cabbage leaf. And they raised golden goblets of rich red wine to their lips and said, Ugh, fancy drinking dirty water out of a trough that a donkey's been at. Never thought we'd come to this. 
But very soon, every dwarf began suspecting that every other dwarf had found something nicer than he had, and they started grabbing and snatching and went on quarreling till in a few minutes there was a free fight and all the good food was smeared on their faces and clothes or trodden underfoot. But when at last they sat down to nurse their black eyes and their bleeding noses, they all said, well, at any rate, there's no humbug here. We haven't let anyone take us in. The dwarfs are for the dwarfs. You see, said Aslan, they will not let us help them. They have chosen cunning instead of belief. Their prison is only in their own minds, yet they are in that prison and so afraid of being taken in that they cannot be taken out. Now there, there is a deep truth in there and you think about what goes on in our current age and the beautiful things of the kingdom of God and the beautiful creation that human beings are and the way that they are abused and mutilated according to the spirit of the age. There are just so many things where we take the good gifts of God and we turn it basically into a food fight. And it is so profoundly sad. But Lewis is saying here that being caught up in this is a prison. It is a prison. And remember, one of the things that Jesus said is that he came to set the captives free. And there's that great line in that hymn, O Church Arise, that says, our call to war, to love the captive soul, but to rage against the captor. And Lucy is such a good example of this here. She doesn't say, after she tries to get the dwarf to smell the violets, she doesn't start screaming at him when he has a fit and says she's tried to give him something from the stable floor. She continues to have compassion and think of ways to try to reach him. And there's a great message in this for us where it's so easy for people that don't understand the sacredness of things and abuse them and profane them it is so easy to want to call down fire from heaven on those people. But what Jesus says is that we are to try to have compassion. And we are to try, and we may not succeed, but we are to try. You don't see Aslan here saying, well, I'm not going to give them a feast because I know exactly what they're going to do with it. He tries. And so there's a message in here for us that we not take cynicism on the other side to say, oh, those people, I know what those people are like. I'm not going to have anything to do with those people because I know what they think about that. And that is how we get into this polarized place that we're in. And Christians ought to be the ones that are out there going across the divide trying to minister. So there are some great scripture verses about this. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In other words, 
that person out there in the culture that is profaning the things of God, they can't understand these things because they're spiritually discerned. And it reminds me of that great passage in Acts of the Ethiopian eunuch who is riding along and he's reading from Isaiah, but he doesn't understand what he's reading. And he says, how can I understand if someone does not interpret it for me? And the hard part of this is it means making friends with people. It means building relationship across divides and seeing what happens. Um, it's not up to us to convince people that's the Holy Spirit's job, but it is up to us to be the hands and feet of love. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And I want to just close with a story that probably many of y'all have heard before, but when I was in college and I was first getting involved in a really deep Christian fellowship and Bible study that I hadn't really experienced before, one of the things that was a little peculiar to me is that people would get together every evening and have a prayer time. But I eventually got to where I thought that was kind of cool. But one of the people that I really admired, uh, and this was a long time ago, it was in the 70s, one of the people that I really admired prayed every time we had a prayer meeting for Alice Cooper. And if you're as old as I am, you'll remember in the 70s, Alice Cooper was perhaps the most awful rock star person that there was. Um, horrible sort of satanic looking um, vibe at concerts, biting the heads off chickens in concerts. I mean, just gross, horrible, just bleh. And I was like, why are you praying for Alice Cooper? And she said, because he needs Jesus. And I was like, well, yeah, I think we can probably agree on that much. But I was like, that's not happening. And she was like, you never know what the Lord may do. And so she committed that she, she every time we were having prayer, she prayed for Alice Cooper to come to Jesus. And I was just like, she's crazy. Well, fast forward about 20 years, I'm reading Time Magazine, Alice Cooper becomes born again Christian. And I was just like, okay. Um, but it's just a reminder that there is no one, no one, no one beyond the reach of the gospel. And Lewis even talks about praying for Hitler in the middle of World War II, that he would come to Jesus. So, if you're like me, it's far too easy to just write people off and we need to repent of that. Because as these verses say, people's understanding can be veiled, but the gospel and the Lord and the Holy Spirit, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So just to close, this is the text of that in paradisum that we listened to at the beginning that I would commend to you. Um, and it is from the ancient burial mass of the church. 
and uh, the English translation, may the angels lead you into paradise, may the martyrs receive you as you arrive, and bring you into the holy city of Jerusalem. May the choir of angels receive you, and with Lazarus once a beggar, may you have eternal rest. And that, of course, is referencing that beautiful scene of Lazarus who was covered with sores and lying at the gate of the rich man and miserable and finally dies. But then he goes and he is literally in Abraham's bosom. Abraham is holding him. And that that is our destiny, to be led by the angels into paradise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the glorious destiny that awaits those who believe in you. Lord, we confess to you how easy it is for us to judge others and to think that they are beyond the reach of the gospel. Lord, we pray that you would help us to repent of that, that you would give us courage and winsomeness and love and holding out the word of truth to this dark and perishing world. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes that we might be able to look along, not just look at, and that we would be more and more tuned to give thanks and adoration to you for the glory of who you are. For we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for coming. Please try to meet someone you have not met before you go home.